Reclaiming Identity, sharing stories of struggle, pride, and redemption in reconnecting with our heritage. Hi, I'm Drora. And I'm Dahlia. And we're bringing you Reclaiming Identity as part of the ASF Institute of Jewish Experience. Do you feel a part of the Jewish story? Is your family what pops up when people think of Jews? At Reclaiming Identity, we celebrate and explore the greater Jewish experience. We encourage you to tell your story and take pride in your heritage as it is a part of your identity. Listen to other people's stories, ask questions, be curious, and reclaim your identity. Today we are joined by Richard Sassoon, an Iraqi-American of Jewish heritage who graduated from Georgetown University's School of Foreign Service and Fordham University Law School with a JD and an LLM in European Business Law from Madrid's Universidad Pontifica Comillas. He currently works at United Lex as a contract manager. Richard sits on the ASF Young Leaders Board as well as being a recipient of the ASF Bruman Allen Fellowship and Scholarship. Richard has a long-standing interest in diverse cultures and regions, having visited over 50 different countries, meeting various high-level diplomats with Jewish organizations, working on three continents, and handling legal documents in five languages. Here, he shares with me his story. Hi, uh, my name is Richard Sassoon. I live in Manhattan. I grew up in Westchester County, in one of the small river towns. Um, In terms of my Jewish life, I grew up in a mostly Ashkenazi community. I became part of the Sephardic world more uh, after I graduated university and was able to connect with the American Sephardic Federation. In terms of my uh, day job, I'm a lawyer by trade. Take a step back. You said you only connected to your Sephardi roots afterwards. Tell us a little bit about what your Sephardi roots are. Sure. Uh, my family is uh, Iraqi. Uh, my grandparents left uh, the old country. I have one grandmother who's Ashkenaz, but the other three were uh, were Sephardi. My and father. All from Iraq. Sorry, I'm interrupting. Yeah, 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 all yeah. yeah. All from Baghdad. All three of them from Baghdad. Yeah, my my father grew up with both uh, Iraqi parents, so he grew up in Westchester with them, and he was really the only Sephard in his uh, high school. There were other Jews there, but the majority of the community, it was Mamaronek, so it was majority uh, Waspy community. Um, my mom grew up with her mother, who was Hungarian, but she didn't maintain a very close relationship with her, especially because uh, she passed away when my mother was relatively young. Uh, her father was living in the UK at the time. Uh, he still he still. Uh, continues to do so, uh, sorry, until he passed away in 2010. So my mom didn't really have much of a Sephardic background growing up. And her mother, despite being Hungarian, was very affected by the Holocaust. So she didn't have much of a Jewish background uh, growing up from uh, from her mother either. Uh, When she met my father, uh, the two of them decided to create a Jewish home together. My father, having come from a Jewish background, my mother being Jewish in name, but not not in practice. So sorry to clarify your grandmother, your mom, your maternal grandmother and grandfather, one is Iraqi and one is Hungarian? That's correct. So during the war, my grandmother was in several of the concentration camps. Uh, when those were liberated, the fact that she spoke Russian was very useful. And she, she spoke Russian, German, uh, English, and French, uh, in addition to her Hungarian. So the Russians found her very useful as a translator. They moved her to Berlin. By 1947, she was able to get out of Berlin uh, and get uh, papers allowing her to immigrate to the United States. So she came here by the end of 1947. In parallel, my grandfather was born in Iraq. In 39, he moved to Iran. From Iran, he left 
I think I want to say in 43, uh, to come to the States for a business opportunity. And so he was here at, in New York at the same time that my grandmother was, and they started a, a romance. They got married in 53. They, uh, the marriage did not survive very long, um, and they got divorced in 59, primarily because he needed to go back to Iran for business reasons. And my grandmother absolutely could not stand Iran. So they ended up divorced, and my grandfather stayed in Iran until 79, off and on. And my grandmother moved with my mother and my mother's older brother to the city. And they lived uh, in the Upper East Side until my grandmother passed away. And did you have a relationship with your grandfather on that side? Uh, she died nearly two decades. No, your before. grandfather, um, your maternal grandfather. My maternal grandfather, absolutely. Um, he used to come over once a year around September because of the high holy days and because my brother and my birthdays were both in September. So it was sort of a... It was sort of an easy way to knock out every every bird with one stone. And he also had a number of Iraqi Jewish friends who lived in Florida. So that would be his yearly thing. He would leave London. He would spend a week or two uh, with us in, in New York. And then he would go down to Florida for a month. And then he'd go back to London. But you were close. You also had a much closer relationship with your paternal grandparents because they lived closer to you. Yeah. Um, my paternal grandfather um, also predeceased me, uh, predeceased my birth. Um, my mater My paternal grandmother, though, was absolutely an integral part of our lives. We went over to her house, sorry, her apartment, numerous times, and we played we played games. She would always uh, come down off the couch. Uh, she had, you know, the uh, typical Iraqi phrases like we suda and we khaybi and, you know. Um, uh, Can you translate those? Um, we suda is, uh, it's, I don't know exactly how you would translate that. It's oh my God, but in a more, more self-reflective, funny way. Uh, we Khaibi is very similar. It's so it's it's expressing sympathy in a very sarcastic way with somebody else's predicament. I also remember uh, this is the memory that sort of sticks with me is when they captured Samasin in the hole that he had hidden himself in, and she was just pointing at the screen and saying, "Why did they just kill him?" Which uh, which proved to be very prescient considering how how it politically unfolded uh, with with his trial and the and the increase of Arab support for him and all these other things, but. Um, I remember that. I remember she would be glued to uh, Days of Our Lives. She had clearly been watching the show for the last 30 years because she could, uh, while she couldn't identify pretty much anything in the news coherently, she could definitely tell you which one of these uh, characters had slept with which other one of these characters and, <laughs> and which one had been a, the traitor to that one. And, um, I, I couldn't have cared less about these plot lines, but of course they were very, very meaningful. Uh, she taught uh, she taught my brother and I how to play backgammon. She loved playing. Oh, she called it backgammon. Yeah, yeah. We um, she would she would slip into Arabic, but because my mother didn't speak, my father didn't teach us to speak, and so a lot of times we would try and switch her back into speaking English. When I became twelve, uh, that was when I started asking to learn Arabic and. As is very typical among native Arabic speakers, she tried to teach me fusha. She tried to teach me real Arabic, not our dialect. Um, Literary because, Arabic. Yes. Well, it, yeah, it's the Arabic in the news, the Arabic in the papers, the Arabic, the Arabic that you would use as a diplomat, but not as a as a person. The the funny thing is, of course, I learned more about my dialect in reverse that way than I did about uh, about fusha because I I ended up studying fusha, you know, later in life. But it was things like, for example, um, she tried to conjugate the verb shuf, 
which is the verb to see, but it's it's a dialectic verb. It's not it's not the verb in fosha. Um, so that's how I learned that shuf is part of our dialect. Or she didn't conjugate uh, the plurals in the feminine. She would use the masculine plural conjugations, which, for example, we have the same problem in modern Hebrew or same benefit. I don't know how you want to phrase it in modern Hebrew. If you look at the future tense of modern Hebrew, right, the aten and hen conjugations have fallen out of use. But if you look at the Bible, those exist, right, for, for that atid tense. It's the same between fosha and uh, our dialect, is that those two Just ending. clarifying, sorry, for the future tense. You, you keep slipping well, into Hebrew too, which is good. Um, well, no, 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 no. But, but the thing is, atid is future tense in Hebrew because of the creations of Eliezer ben Yehuda. If you look at the Bible, there is no present tense. The Arabic present tense is the equivalent tense of the Hebrew future tense. And in Arabic, in order to create the future tense, we add a prefix. And that was another thing that I learned in terms of our dialect, because the prefix in fosha is to use the letter S. And the prefix in our dialect was to use the letter D. But yeah, so I learned all these specific verbs and conjugations and things based on what she didn't remember about Fosha, even though she was trying to teach me Fosha. And I'm trying to think what else there was. Uh, the furniture she had in that apartment was from when, was from the first house that they had in Mamaronek back in the 50s. And she had just never changed it. She couldn't, she couldn't give up on that furniture. And it was stuff like old upholstered chairs and um, a very large couch. Thankfully, uh, no Persian claw feet. So um, they, they actually, you actually could look at them. Had they brought anything with them when they came? No. Um, my, my grandfather came to the States by way of several other countries. We can get into that if you want. But because of that, he didn't come with property. And my grandmother came because she was literally brought over as a potential wife. So um, she just came with a suitcase. So did they ever tell you, either one of them, either your grandmother or your grandfather, ever tell you about life in Baghdad? Well, my grandfather, as I said, predeceased me, so he couldn't. Um, no, the other grandfather. I, I hear. Uh, oh, 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 yeah, that's true. Um, you have one grandfather, one grandmother. <laughs> yes, uh, yeah, it's true. My grandfather, when we spoke, we often spoke about Iran more than we did Iraq because that was the 30 years of his professional life and that's sort of what he remembered most. Uh, with my grandmother, yes, we had uh, we had sort of short vignettes and stories. The one that sticks out most in my mind was uh, the story of Joe's dog. She had a younger brother named Joe and Joe had this dog that he lived with. And as is typical for the Middle East, the dog would stay outside of the house. So one night the dog was stolen and uh, Joe was very upset because, you know, his dog and a few months later he was in the market and the dog was with another man but as soon as the dog saw joe it ran up to joe and it started licking him and kissing him and all these kinds of things and the man started screaming hey that's my dog you know you can't take my dog and they were in front of a shop and the shop owner said no no the way the dog ran up to him that's his dog that's not your dog and so joe went home with his dog and he was so happy and a few days later the dog was stolen again um, and they never found the dog. Another story. And you say that they had a dog in a Persian, in a, sorry, in a Muslim country. You can you can have dogs in Muslim countries. You just can't bring them in the house. So he would live outside. Yeah, 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 they were living just north of the city of Baghdad, and they had a house that's very similar in structure to a riyadh. I don't know what you call it in, in in Iraq, but it's a house where all four sides of the house are on the curb, but in the center of the house there is uh, a garden or a portico, and so the dog would stay stay in there, but. 
the dog is technically outside, right? It's not, it's not in the house. There's that story. I remember from my grandmother's sister, she told us the story of the Farhud. On that night, Edward, who was the eldest brother and had basically become the patriarch of the house because I mean, sorry, their father- Sorry, take a step back, just make sure everybody knows. Can you give in two sentences, what was the Farhud? Sure. Um, in the 1940s, there was a lot of Nazi influence in Iraq, and especially there were high-level meetings with Heinrich Himmler and a number of fascist, uh, we can say, um, Iraqi uh, political dissidents, because uh, during the period Iraq was under British occupation. And these leaders swept to power. Um, probably the most famous uh, in our community is Hajamin al-Husseini, who was the Grand Mufti of Jerusalem. He was in Iraq because he had been exiled from, uh, from Palestine. 1939 um, as a result of the Palestinian civil war. But the one who took power was Rashid Ali al-Gailani, who was an Iraqi fascist. And after about a few months of fighting, uh, the British managed to eject this government, but they waited outside of Baghdad for a few days in order to try and consolidate their attack or because they weren't interested in attacking. There are different historical sources on that. Um, during that period, it happened to be the Jewish holiday of Shavuot. And um, these fascist leaders who are very strongly Nazi aligned um, started a, a Jewish pogrom. Uh, and this Jewish pogrom is called the Farhud. About 200 people died, thousands of people were injured, and you have millions of dollars of property damage uh, that occurred during this period. So yeah, so the story of my family is that my, gran my grandmother had three sisters and two brothers, right? We already know Joe. Joe is the younger brother. Edward is the older brother. And they had a mother, but their father had already uh, died by this point, natural causes. So Edward was really the patriarch of the family. And he uh, spoke to several Muslim friends of his. And one of them was willing to give him shelter and give the family shelter. So at this point, they were hiding in the house. And in the street, you had a mob uh, approaching saying, give us the Jew, give us the Jew. Because they, they knew that it was a Muslim house, but they knew also that this was a good friend of Edward's. And so they, they surmised that Jews were in the house. And so Edward asked his Muslim friend if uh, he could borrow the rifle because Jews were not allowed to have weapons, but this Muslim family, they had, they had a bandakiya, they had a, you know, an old style rifle. And he went out onto the upper deck. There was uh, sort of a balcony uh, with a window facing the street and he fired a warning shot into the air and that dispersed the crowd and he told them to go home. So Edward really put his life on the line and so did this Muslim family, they put their lives on the line. The Farhud was really a day and change. So once you had made it through the night, that was when the British forces came in and sort of ended the, ended the, the pogrom. But uh, there's, there's huge debate as to why the British didn't intervene sooner. On my uh, father's side, I got a story from my grandfather's brother and his name was Salim. He survived into my uh, adolescence and Salim's story was particularly terrible. He was walking home from school when the, when the Farhud happened, he was a young man. And this older Muslim woman, probably in her mid forties, found him, uh, pummeled him and started kicking him in, in his ribs until he passed out. We believe that the reason that she stopped was because she already thought he was dead, but on the same token, right, you had you had a taxi driver who knew Salim, also Muslim, and he stopped the car and he loaded Salim into the car, brought him to the hospital where he got immediate treatment for uh, for his injuries and, and everything. He was brought from Iraq to uh, Miami because the medical technologies and situation in Miami was much better than anything that they could find in Iraq. But the fact that he was in the United States meant that he was drafted into uh, the US Armed Forces. 
uh, when the war started against uh, against the Europeans. So he uh, ended up serving in 44 and 45. As far as I know, he may have served earlier, but uh, he never told me about that. And it was particularly difficult for him because he had gone to a French-speaking school in Iraq. So while he could understand English to a limited degree, he couldn't speak it. He spoke Arabic and French and he knew liturgical Hebrew, but none of those are terribly helpful. The way he won the hearts of his fellow service members was that, you know, late at night, he would sneak out of uh, the military positions in the trenches and go to local French villages, usually those under Nazi occupation. And apparently he was uh, <laughs> very effective with, with the ladies. Um, but the way the troops remember him is that he brought back lots of food from all these French towns. And so he uh, he earned their way into their hearts uh, through their stomachs, uh, regardless of the fact that he barely, un they barely understood him. Uh, he also had a very thick uh, Iraqi accent at the time. Uh, it's mellowed with age. So that that was that was his story. And so after the war, under the War Brides Act, he was able to bring over uh, this girl that he had fancied when he was a kid. For those who don't know, the War Brides Act was an American military uh, law that allowed men to bring back foreign women um, uh, while they were serving. Because uh, a lot of times when these soldiers were serving in Europe, um, especially, but also in Japan and other countries, they fell in love with a local woman and they wanted to make a family, but that woman was obviously not an American citizen, so how could she come to America? The War Brides Act basically meant that if you were a soldier, you could bring back this foreign woman and she would become an American citizen because you were an American citizen. And the law is sexist because almost all the soldiers on the ground were men. Uh, that's just that's just the history of it. So, so he brought over this woman from Iraq that he had fancied, and at the same time, my grandfather uh, was coming into the United States, and he met up with Salim, who was his younger brother, and the two of them decided to make a business together, which was when they bought the house in Larchmont. My grandfather saw Salim and his wife and said, you know, does she have any sisters? And so they imported my grandmother. It's a crazy story. <laughs> yeah. Um, the business actually survived as long as my grandfather did, because my grandfather had a number of contacts in Latin America that produced textiles. So it was a textile importation business. Um, and my grandfather had the contacts and the outgoing personality, and uh, Salim was the accountant. You you had said that uh, your grandmother taught you some Arabic. Did they speak Arabic amongst themselves? Anyway? Absolutely. Well, you have to realize when the elderly came together, they would speak Arabic, and I would understand some things, but not a lot. I learned Arabic because I affirmatively learned it. Uh, I wasn't a native speaker, so. So, so there were these expressions that I knew, and occasionally I'd be able to figure out the general gist of the conversation, but most of the time they'd have to speak in English for us to understand them. Let's go back to your personal upbringing. You said you sure. grew up in a very waspy neighborhood. Um, did you go to any type of a Jewish school, or did you have Jewish... Well, uh, yeah, I was going to say that... Um, my, uh, I was talking about my father. He grew up in a very waspy neighborhood um, because at that time, Westchester didn't have a large Jewish population the way it does now. That really changed in the 70s and 80s. My community, when I grew up in Hastings, was probably about 50-50 or 40-60, the minority being Jews. But it was a significant minority. It was just, it happened to be an Ashkenazi reform minority. Um, so in terms of Jewish education, there was a reform synagogue in uh, in the town, and there was a conservative synagogue in Dubs Ferry called uh, Greenberg Hebrew Center. Both still exist. I went to the conservative synagogue, and my grandparents, while they while they were alive on my on my father's side, they always went to conservative synagogues in the states. They considered Orthodox to be too religious for them, and there also weren't 
large-scale Sephardi synagogues in Westchester County at that time, at least as far as I'm aware. So our Jewish education was a Ashkenazi education because the conservative movement is entirely Ashkenazi. Uh, yeah, so I went to school there from kindergarten until bar mitzvah. After that, I went to the Jewish Theological Seminary, which is the headquarters of the conservative movement here in New York City for their Prozdor High School program. And I was there for the next five years. And did you feel part of the Jewish community there? Sure. Um, yeah, I mean, I knew I was different, but um, it's not like these communities really stressed the distinction between Ashkenaz and Sephard. Um, in, in many cases, in their, part, in their idea, part of the Jewish experience that there were Jews from the Middle East, they didn't, it's not like, uh, there wasn't any, anything exclusive in terms of their treatment of, uh, in terms of their treatment of me, and they didn't know anything to say, these are the things that are different in your tradition. And I would notice that there were some things that were different, like that we ate rice on Passover. That was probably the most obvious one to me as a kid. But I didn't feel ex uh, you know, excluded or anything because of my Iraqi ancestry. I just didn't know what it meant. What, did they ever mention the Fahud when you talked? I'm sure that you talked about the Holocaust in the- Absolutely. Um, we talked about the Holocaust, but the Holocaust was in, you know, in especially at GHC, but also in Prozdor, the Holocaust was a European phenomenon. Right. That that was the way that it was explained and taught. And um, and there are a lot of aspects of the Holocaust, even in Europe, that we didn't touch on. Right. We didn't talk about the Ustasha genocides and we didn't talk about the uh, situation in Romania. And we didn't talk about uh, some of the Russian uh, collaborationist things um, that went against the against Stalin's orders, all these kinds of things, um, uh, especially in Ukraine. We, we those things we didn't really talk about either. But we, we talked about the things that the Nazis did in Europe, and that was sort of the framing of the Holocaust, right? That's, that's what it was. As I'm sure your videos uh, demonstrate, the Holocaust was not just a European phenomenon. There were massive labor camps across North Africa uh, to which Jews were deported. You have um, the Farhud, which was, as I pointed out, instigated by the Nazis through their relationships with, uh, with the Golden Square, which is, that or which is those four fascists led by Rashid Ali al-Gailani. You have uh, situations uh, in the former French colonies in Lebanon and in Syria, uh, which didn't rise to the same kind of labor camps and uh, organized pogroms as occurred in Iraq and in uh, North Africa, irrespectively, but uh, were still repression of the Jewish population. So obviously it was not just a European phenomenon. And as I mentioned in Europe, you also had collaborationist uh, activities that were um, that were pogroms or massacres or genocides against the Jewish people, like uh, like in Croatia and Bosnia Herzegovina uh, with the Ustasha, which is a fascist regime that was very strongly Nazi aligned. That was based in Croatia and Bosnia Herzegovina. And I only really discovered the story of the Ustasha when I was in Serbia, because of course the Serbs remember it well. The Serbs were also persecuted uh, by the Ustasha, and they have a number of memorials to Yasenovac and all these all these different concentration camps and death camps that the Ustasha had built. So in their view, the, the Holocaust was a very simplified event where the Nazis brought the Jews either to labor camps or death camps. And there were people who resisted, people who fought back. But basically, it was a European story fought by the Nazis against a European Jewish population, as opposed to an international and intercontinental scope of, of atrocities. I think I don't think it was uh, targeted against Sparta in any way, because we did mention, for example, uh, the story of the Jews of Thessaloniki, who are all, who are all Sparta Romanyot. There was no real Ashkenazi community in, in Thessaloniki, for example. And we talked about that. We talked about the deportation of the Greek Jews. 
The thing is, though, of course, we didn't stress that they were Sephardi. They were just Jews like any other Jews. It's also there's something kind of nice about that, I think, no? Yes. They're just Jews. Um, so, so obviously you're very, very well read on all this type of stuff. So what made you switch? What made you want to research and learn more in depth Arabic? And what, what brought you back to this? I don't think there was ever a point where I didn't want to know these kinds of things. I was always fascinated with what I knew. The problem is that if you don't know what you don't know, there's no way to access that information because you don't know what you're searching for and you, and you don't know where the hole is. That's sort of the issue. So when I started becoming more familiar with some of the unique differences in Sephardic Judaism, when I started um, coming into contact with books and, and things that would show me with increased clarity what the history was of our region and all these kinds of things, then I knew what questions to ask and then I could refine the search. I remember in particular in Prose Door, um, during my, during, we had a, like an hour break for lunch every Sunday. And I would find myself in that massive Jewish theological seminary library. And there was one book that really deep in the shelves that caught my eye, which was like Jews from exotic places. It was, some, it was something like that. It wasn't that exact title, but it was something like that. And it described the, you know, the Jewish communities of Kaifeng, China, or of Bukhara, or of Ethiopia, right? Like these very far-flung Jewish communities. And there was also listed there, right, the Jewish communities of Iraq. And, you know, they discussed certain aspects of our culture and our history and all these kinds of things, because from the European experience, we were, you know, the exotic strange ones, despite the fact that uh, we were there first, we were there longer. And so that sort of opened my eyes in a certain way to the diversity of the Jewish experience, right? Because during growing up, we were Jews. That was it. Like that, like that was that was the only major undercurrent. The fact that everybody was Ashkenaz was just sort of understood, but it wasn't explicitly taught because everybody's, you know, experience was, you know, my family came from Poland, Hungary, Russia. I don't know what the borders were. And I was like, yeah, my family came from Iraq. We know what city, like it's not, there's, 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 there's really no confusion here. And the only other sort of strange experience growing up was when uh, we were asked, you know, in our Hebrew schools to make a family tree. Um, and I remember telling the professor, you know, uh, sorry, the teacher. Wow, it's been a long time. Uh, <laughs> I remember telling the teacher, you know, my I can't do that. My paper won't lie flat. And she said, what do you mean? I said, my parents are related by marriage. And my teacher said, of course, they're related by marriage. They're married to each other. <laughs> and I said, no, no, no. Another marriage. Uh, 35 years before either of them were born, there's a marriage. Um, so like, like it wouldn't it wouldn't work because um, and of course, none of the Ashkenaz seem to have this problem, which is, I, which I think is hilarious considering how much genetic bottleneck there is in the Ashkenazi community. But yeah, uh, in, in my family, you know, you have these sort of situations where the family marries itself repeatedly. Can you tell us a little how you're correcting that lack of knowledge that you think that uh, people have today? And you're, you're very active in that, so. I, I, I actually don't know how active I am in that, but um, no, uh, I. I put okay, then what would you like to see happen? Because you have the capabilities. <laughs> um, no, like there, there are Sephardic events by the by the ASF. I, I sort of talk about it on a personal level. The the key aspect I think is just to sort of normalize this kind of discussion in the same way that we've normalized discussion in in Western society about gays, and we've normalized conversation in Western society about discrimination against religious or ethnic or racial minorities. It's just it's just a, it's just 
people just sort of have to be aware of the situation. And I think that's stage number one. And then stage number two is recognition and integration, right? Um, I think uh, when the Israeli government decided to make that holiday in commemoration of the Jewish exodus from uh, Muslim countries, that was sort of a step in recognizing the longstanding part that Mizrahim have had both in Israel and in the wider Jewish community, right? And so it's this sort of understanding and recognition and, and development. And the end goal for me is, is a little bit different than I think for a lot of Mizrahi activists. The end goal for me is just that people sort of understand that, that there is a diversity of Jewish experience and that uh, we have all these different traditions. And so while the Ashkenazim have numbers and they have wealth behind them in a certain way, they're not the end of the Jewish experience. They're just one of many Jewish experiences. There are, there are all these different stories that show what it means to be a Jew in all, all these different contexts. And that's, that's just what I want people to sort of be more familiar with. In the same way that they're familiar with you know, French people being different than German people or Italians or whatever. Sort of that awareness of, of difference of experience. And if you could have changed something in your upbringing or to say something to your younger self, what would you, would you have changed something as a teenager or before? I'm really afraid of the butterfly effect. So, so okay. I wouldn't. You don't but, have to. Um, but I think that if I, I could have explained to my younger self more about what Jewish history looked like throughout its tenure um, to my younger self, because I think I would have been receptive to it. I think, uh, I remember in sixth grade, I would actually stay behind in social studies class and like ask more questions and like ask if they had a textbook I could read, like all kinds of fun stuff like that. Because I felt that one week on India or, you know, two weeks on China, I didn't, I felt like I barely scratched the surface, right? I wanted to know more. If I had that sort of access, then I would have tried to teach my younger self more about our history in the Middle East and all these kinds of things. But I think that growing into it and choosing it affirmatively really makes you that much more interested in it. So I'm, I'm hesitant to say that, that I actually would do it, right? Because motivations change. And do you find that you have a group that you can work with? Do you find that you have peers that are also interested, that you have a community of peers? I would say that there are people within the Sephardic community who are very interested in this process and this project. And so I can talk to them and I can learn from them. But a lot of the problem, and I think the Institute is trying to remedy this, is that there aren't as many sources on Sephardic history. And to the extent that we have sources, a lot of them are documented by people who are actively hostile to the Sephardic experience, right? I mean, you've seen them, I've seen them. Uh, there are movies that were made by the Israeli government between the years of 1950 and 1970, which attempt to portray the Mizrahi experience. And those, uh, and those movies are extremely patronizing. Um, and they describe the Mizrahi experience in terms of what it is lacking, right? They describe it in terms of they're not lawyers, bankers, and doctors. They're not educated. They're not developed. They're agricultural merchants who don't know how a shower works. And like that, this, this was their portrayal of our community. So we really run into a problem of we don't have easily accessible sources to just sort of explain who we are in our own words because, oh, and, and the fact that we're uh, believers in all kinds of supernatural garbage as opposed to science and, and technology. Sometimes you sort of wonder if they have ever seen the Hasidic community. No, but also if they've ever seen the Iraqi community. I mean, there are plenty right, right. of- no, 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 but like, like the, stuff, the stuff that they'll say is stuff like, you know, yeah, exactly. But it's more like nor uh, rural North Africans who kind of do this sort of stuff of the Hamza and the evil eye and, and all that kind of stuff. And, but no, you would have this Ashkenazic portrayal of 
you know, these are people who we thankfully rescued from the dark ages where they had no, you know, discernible contribution to society. And thankfully we can put them to work in building uh, the new Israeli skyscrapers, right? Like this, this was, this was their, their understanding of who we were. And to the extent that we were useful, we were useful as spies because we spoke the language of the enemy, right? That wasn't our understanding of our experience. And it was actually funny. There was uh, a woman who presented at the ASF. Her name escapes me at the moment. Um, she's Palestinian ethnically. Uh, as her doctoral thesis, she decided to write about the contributions of Greeks and Jews in Egypt. Because as a PhD thesis, you don't want to do something that's very close to you. Um, and so, so she didn't do something on the Palestinian experience, which she would have been more inclined to do. She went through all these immigration letters, which I have to say, fantastic work because I cannot read them. The, the Arabic scrawl in them is absolutely unreadable. And as, as you can probably tell from ASF's work, I speak Fosha fluently at this point. So that should give you a sense of how bad it is. Uh, but she went through it and she actually talked about how Jews were con uh, contributing to the Egyptian banking sector. She talked about how uh, Jews were involved in the industrialization of Egypt, how Jews were involved in the creation of the national press in Egypt, uh, Jewish journalists, Jewish government officials, all of these very high levels of Jewish participation in the Egyptian project, as well as in the Zionist project, right? You had Jews who either commented negatively about Zionism, Jews who believed that Zionism was a replacement for Egyptian nationalism, Jews who believed that those two forks, Zionism and Egyptian nationalism, could work together, and a strong Egypt required a strong Israel and vice versa, right? Because both of them were anti-colonial entities. So you had all these different views of Jews actively engaging in the political discourse and economic development and uh, social and social organization of Egypt because they weren't just, you know, people in the country, you know, waving Hamzas and waiting for, for Ashkenazi Jews to airlift them. Like that, that was just not their, that was just not their experience. Um, and I think that the fundamental issue is that Jews in the West, be they Ashkenaz or Sephard, um, really don't have access to the understanding of what that experience was that it that jews were not some that jews were not disengaged they were actively engaged and they were engaged to the same degree that ashkenazim were engaged in the development of their own countries and this is what i meant by your passion that this this is really what i see as your your passion project and getting the word out there so we appreciate that yeah uh is there is there anything else or i think that's a great way to end because i think you showed what what needs to go next so i appreciate it Thank yeah. you so much for your time and your knowledge, obviously. And uh, we hope to see you soon at Institute events in the near future. And we'll have you speaking. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. Reclaiming Identity is produced and edited by Moshe Singer and executive produced by Dalia Arusi and Drora Arusi. Our theme music is by Vanessa Paloma. Be sure to check her out on Spotify. Be a part of the reclamation. Subscribe to the Reclaiming Identity podcast on our website, instituteofjewishexperience.org, on our Facebook page, Spotify, or Apple Music. Follow our programs on our website and the Institute of Jewish Experience channel on YouTube. And please help support these and other ASF Institute of Jewish Experience efforts by donating today.